Save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre-finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty. That means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP Smart Side today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hey there, Fangirl Nation. You are listening to Fangirl Sports Network's Get My Job podcast on Blue Wire. I am your host, Tracy Sandler, and I am so excited to be joined today by senior writer and injury analyst at ESPN, Stefania Bell. Stefania talks about creating a niche that married her background in physical therapy with her love of sports, learning not to take constructive criticism personally, and of course, the incredible E60 Project 11, The Alex Smith Story. She also shares how to turn a no into a yes and how it's impacted her career, while being candid about current insecurities that many women can relate to. This is an awesome episode, so make sure to subscribe, rate, review, and enjoy. Stefania, thank you so much for joining me today. I have been so excited to have you on the podcast, and we met during training camp at Fortnite's training camp. Uh, and that's how this came about. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to join you. And, you know, I will say when we met at 49ers training camp, nothing had happened yet. Everything was sunshine no. and roses. So <laughs> everything was sunshine and roses. And we're recording this on the Monday after week two. And things are not sunshine and roses with the 49ers or around the league, unfortunately. Um, but uh, that is probably a conversation for another day, but I'm sure everybody listening loves football and fantasy football. So you guys might all be like, no, really, let's talk about it. Now. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> but no, no. I'm going to keep all of that separate from here. And so we're going to stay sunshine and roses here. We are. We're saying <laughs> sunshine and roses. And so to start on our sunshiny, rosy path, can you please start by taking us through your professional journey to this point? Oh, yes. Um, it, it's, it's not a career path I would I'd recommend to anyone in the sense that it was circuitous. You know, I'm very grateful for all the steps along the way, but it's not like I had a, a direct and linear path to what I'm doing now, which is uh, working at ESPN as a, as a writer and an analyst on all things uh, injury and medical. Um, but I'm actually a physical therapist. I still maintain my license as a physical therapist. I practiced physical therapy um, in the area of orthopedics and sports medicine for almost 20 years before I ever moved into the media side. So my initial background was really in healthcare, but I also have been an avid sports fan my whole life. I worked in the training room in college at Princeton. That's actually how I diverted from what I thought I wanted to do, which was to be an orthopedic surgeon into physical therapy, because I really enjoyed working with athletes one-on-one -on -one and going through all the phases of their rehab. And you really felt like you had a hand in, in not only showing them what they needed to do, but encouraging them along the way. And the relationships with your patients, to me, were so much stronger because of all the time you spent with them. So that's how I got into physical therapy um, and into sports medicine in particular, and over the course of being a physical therapist, I practiced, you know, first at, for people who are in the Bay Area, I, I came back, I'm from the Bay Area, I came back and lived in San Francisco initially and worked for Kaiser. And one of my 
reasons for working there was because I knew I would see this broad base of patients and a high volume mm-hmm. of patients. And I think when you're new in medicine, that's that's what you want to do is be exposed to as many things as you can be. And so it was a great start. And I ended up after a few years going out to the University of Kansas. Uh, I had an opportunity to work for one of my former professors and take a faculty position also while working in the sports medicine department. So it put me in a position where I was working with D1 athletes, but also teaching in physical therapy. And that's really, I had been exposed to a little bit of, you know, as a graduate assistant and so on, but that's where I discovered a love of teaching, which Mm -hmm. works its way into what I do now, which I think is teaching and sharing information. And after being at KU for five years and a great run there, I loved working with KU athletes as well. Um, Went back to the Bay Area and again, worked for Kaiser, but we really helped build a sports medicine practice in the South Bay Area. I worked with an orthopedic surgeon who had trained in Alabama and was really the first to to do uh, Tommy John surgery in that area. So we built up a baseball medicine practice and also uh, a lot of, you know, in in Northern California, as many people know, huge youth soccer population. So um, saw a lot of ACLs and young girls and was really building a female athlete practice as well. And between that, and I also worked with performing artists and athletes uh, doing side consulting, all of that together sort of informed the patient background that I have that I bring to the media side. And in the meantime, I began playing fantasy football and it got hooked on fantasy football and found out that people playing with me were always asking questions about injuries and what does mm-hmm. injury mean and how long is a guy out? And I felt like I was answering the same questions over again, kind of like I did for my students because through this whole time, I stayed involved in teaching, taught at Samuel Merritt College in Oakland and taught in Kaiser's post-professional fellowship. So I was really doing teaching and sports medicine and playing fantasy football opened my eyes to the possibility that I could do something where I combined all of these things that I loved. And mm-hmm. it took a while, you know, I, there, nobody was really interested in that. There wasn't anybody else really doing this or people thought it was kind of a unique idea, but eh, you can't really make a living doing that. And I thought, all these people keep asking me about this information. There's <laughs> got to be a way to capitalize on it somehow. And so I just persisted. And I went to a couple of fantasy sports trade association shows. Um, you know, it was basically like a small conference. And it was largely mom and pop uh, operations then with a few of the big companies getting into the business. CBS Sportsline was big back then. Uh, Yahoo was, was, uh, was doing some stuff. And ESPN was starting to as well. And it was through that exposure that I ended up working for a tiny group, KFFL initially, writing really under somebody else's byline, just a paragraph or two. And mm-hmm. then that turned into an opportunity with Rotowire. And I will be forever grateful to the folks at Rotowire because they really gave my writing more prominence. I had my own column. I was writing for their magazines, which at the time, everybody was you know buying magazines in preseason. I did baseball and football writing. And they got a contract with Sirius XM Radio, and that put me on the air. And that was my first experience doing this type of content on air. And, and then I had met Matthew Barry and he had just been, his site had been bought by ESPN. He had moved there and was trying to build the fantasy department. Essentially he was in charge of that. And within his first, his first year there, uh, we spoke and he brought my writing to some people and they liked the combination of what I had to offer. And I appreciated the fact that they were looking at it saying, hey, there's not that many women in the fantasy football arena. I mean, really at that time, 
you know, I, I was lucky if I saw you know, three or four at the, okay. the trade association meetings. And even at ESPN, there weren't that many women. It's hard to believe now because there's so many women um, writers and broadcasters and so forth. Uh, but at the time, there there were far fewer. And so I went out for an audition. I was sure that I had flunked everything. I was ready to leave with my tail between my legs. Mm-hmm. And uh, somehow, a very creative executive, I'll always be grateful uh, to, said, you know, I like the combination of things that you bring. And um, he basically hired me before I left. So it was great. And uh, the rest, as they say, is history. I'm in my 14th year with ESPN now, which is just incredible. And uh, you know what I do. Yes. (laughs) That is um, sort of the long and winding road. People ask if I still see patients. I don't because in physical therapy, really, um, you know, I, I did some consulting for a while. I did stay with my practice. My first year I commuted back and forth to California, but um, I'm, I'm thankful that my job responsibilities at ESPN grew, but it, it became apparent that I would need to move here to do what I wanted to do in this mm-hmm. field. And I really couldn't dedicate. I was trying to create this role at ESPN and that meant being available. Uh, if injuries happened, you know, what was, mm-hmm. so I couldn't um, adhere to a traditional schedule that would be appropriate for patient care. And I felt like, you know, I, I had worked in physical therapy for over 20 years and I felt like I still could be valuable as a physical therapist and still represent my profession, but maybe in, in sort of the second phase of my professional life. So uh, that's, that's where I am now. I'm still very tied. It, it's always going to be in my DNA that I'm a PT, uh, but I don't currently see patients. But I'm, I'm glad you took us through that story and, and that I know in the beginning you said it was circuitous, but I say this, I feel like I say this a lot on the podcast, but I do want to drive it home, is that part of the reason we wanted to start this podcast at Fangirl was for women to understand that there are so many opportunities to work in the sports industry and there are so many opportunities to marry your different talents, your different interests, and I think you're a great example of that. Uh, so I'm I'm glad you were able to take us through that. And then my question is, at what point did you realize you wanted to marry the two? And how did you decide that you had a love of writing and kind of want to create this niche for yourself? I understand that from Roto World and everything, but just kind of was there a moment where you're like, wait a minute, I think I can take these two loves and make them into one. I don't know if there was a moment. I, I think... Um... I think it it was evolutionary, you know. I, I was a literature major, actually French literature at Princeton, which surprises okay. a lot of people. And I remember at the time people saying to my parents, well, what's she going to do with that? Like it was the mm-hmm. stupidest. Like how could they possibly support an Ivy League education where you have a French literature major? And their assumption was you're going to, like she's going to be a French teacher. And I would have been happy being a French teacher, to be honest. I, mm-hmm. I stayed in France when I was young for a summer. I was fluent. I, you know, that, that was very important to me personally, but my rationale for that was that I was pre-med also. And Mm -hmm. I knew that the rest of my professional life would be dedicated to science. And so Mm -hmm. I really wanted to stick with this writing and literature angle, which is actually where I think I excel. I actually, you know, I, I think I'm better at that than at hard science. Um, That's interesting. Which I think is why physical therapy ends up being a good fit, to be honest, because physical therapy is really this merger of of science and art. And um, 
and creativity. And I think that's, even though I would never uh, loud myself as being particularly creative, I do think that that's why it worked with my brain. You know, mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of physics and physical therapy. I was not good at physics, uh, but I, when it was practical and it required creativity, I was good at it. So um, anyway, the writing came from, from there, from college. And, and I chose Princeton weirdly now that I think about it, but I love the fact that you had to write a thesis uh, to graduate, mm-hmm. that it was, this was something that you dedicated yourself to for a year, that it was printed and bound. And that's, you know, and it's a requirement for everyone um, who attends the university and you had junior papers. So there's a lot of writing in my background and in my major. And then in teaching that, I, that really paid off. I felt like um, if you could write, you were better able to articulate your thoughts. I felt like my students needed that. They did not agree with me for the most part. I can tell you this. They were like, mm-hmm. we are in science. We don't need to write. And I said, but what about when you have to communicate? Because back then we communicated with letters and <laughs> like, you know, faxes to, I'm dating myself, but you know, email wasn't that it, it was sort of developing. Um, okay. But even with emails, you know, and, and it's amazing. And, and I'm sure everybody's had the experience of when you get an email and it's really well written and it's communicated to you very well versus, uh, versus the opposite. And so yes. mm-hmm. writing to me has always been important for uh, a variety of things, not just writing a paper or writing an article. And then teaching and education was something that I was always drawn to. And I think what I do now, you know, that's, I always feel like I want to impart something to the mm-hmm. audience. You know, maybe it's just a little nugget. Maybe it's something from the perspective of this is how we see this medically. Uh, which mm-hmm. is different than, you know, maybe the traditional sports take. So I think the educational part was there all along. And then the medical part, you know. So I think when I saw that I could do all these things around sports, and sports has always been the passion. You know, I would be, the, I always wanted to, I grew up in a household watching sports. I always was tuned into sports. Sports is a great topic of conversation when you work in a sports medicine setting because your patients are typically into it as well. So Sports was a regular theme, at, but to think that I could work in sports, even though I did on the side of patient care, I'm talking mm-hmm. about working at like ESPN or right. a media outlet. I A lot of it came when I was watching and I would think, well, oh, if only somebody could just explain this to people, I'd, I'd see a broadcast and I think there's a way to tell people what this means. And I thought, well, if nobody's doing it, why not me? And that, that was the, you know, crazy enough idea that I had that sort of pushed me to try and do it. Well, I have two follow-ups in there. Um, I'm going to start with what you just said, the why not me. And I think it's important because for our listeners who may have an idea and obviously not every time someone says, why not me, does it come true? But it's a good example for if you find something that you think you're going to be good at and a niche for yourself, if you can start doing it. And and in today's day and age, you can just kind of start doing it, whether you do social media around it or that kind of thing. And, and I think that's important for people to understand that you can create a niche for yourself that maybe isn't there. Absolutely. And I think there's two things that come to mind. One is I, I don't, I don't know how to say this, but I'm, I'm not very good with no, or if, with somebody mm-hmm. telling me 
that I can't do something uh, without there being a, a really good reason. Like no, because of no doesn't sit well with me. Like I need, I need to have an understanding of why would you suggest that I can't do that? Something that I need to study more. Is it something I, you know, what do I need to do to turn the no into a yes? And maybe mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of credit for that comes from just my parents. It's how I was raised to believe that I could do anything that I wanted to do. So I was very fortunate that that was, you know, that's been foundational since I was a kid. So I always believed, well, if I really want to do something, then I absolutely should pursue it. Um, not at the expense of everything else, though. And I, I think that the flip side is that I often think people expect the results to come immediately. And I think more and more so, maybe this is just me getting older and look, having a little more wisdom, but I never expected ESPN to come running to find me because I thought I had this skill when I was lobbying to try and get a site to allow me to do something for them I wrote practice columns you know I Mm -hmm. ended up getting that first gig with KFFL where I was writing under somebody else's byline with a couple of paragraphs and I would do it in the wee hours because I had to I was still working I actually worked three jobs at the time. It was full-time. Um, wow. And the orthopedics and sports medicine with the teaching was my second job. And then the third was my consulting business. So I did all that and I wrote basically for free. Um, and once a week, it was almost an all-nighter because I would have to gather the information. The internet wasn't as full of information that was ready at your fingertips right then. Right. It was a little a uh, little more involved in terms of information gathering and then setting up what it was I wanted to talk about. And so I did that because I just wanted somewhere to have my work be able to be seen and felt like I would need to build it. And yet I think people now, and I say it generically, and I know it's not across the board, but I think much to a much larger extent than was the case at the time I was doing this, uh, people expect now like great results, like first job out of journalism school, you want to come and have this magnificent, you know, role as a primary featured broadcaster at ESPN. And that that might happen once in a while, but it's not the norm. And I'm not saying everybody has to work for free or, you know, got to do uh you got to pay your dues like i did but i do think there's something that comes with some experience and just having realistic expectations of how you're going to forge a path and go from start to something slightly bigger to bigger to bigger and and allow it to evolve and and so even though i was determined to try and carve out this path i didn't know exactly what it would look like i never expected mm-hmm. it to happen in a heartbeat. And even though people look and go, Oh, wow. Cause when you're telling the story readers digest version or, you know, not quite if you're me and I'm, it's longer, but they hear, Oh, you did this. And then you got to ESPN. It's like, but there was a lot of steps in between that weren't right. necessarily glamorous. So um, it, it may take a while to get there, but that doesn't mean you can't do it. Well, and I think you bring up another good point is that it does take a while. I think oftentimes when we see people, when people come onto the scene, for lack of a better term, no matter what it's in, sports, entertainment, whatever it may be, most of the time those people have been working at it for a very long time. It's just they come onto the scene and that's when everybody gets to know who they are. Correct. But most likely 
you know, the sports broadcaster you see on not doing national football coverage was at a regional sports desk, you know, early in his or her career. And then they went to next place and that, you know, and I think that's something to keep in mind. And there's something to be said, you mentioned experience and there's something to be said for getting reps because this has come up on the pod before you don't want to get an opportunity and not know how to do it. Um, you want to say yes to opportunities. You want to be open to opportunities, but you want to put yourself, I think, in the best position to succeed because oftentimes you don't get another opportunity to show that you can. Sure. And that's why, you know, I, when I came to ESPN, I did not have the media background and, and, uh, I was fortunate that I had this niche that they wanted to, um, they wanted to bring in that element to what they were doing and they were willing to try and help me grow on the media side. So again, I will be forever grateful for that, but I also recognized like, this is not a skill set of mine that I have because I don't come from this background and Mm -hmm. uh, people have no idea. You know, I didn't just show up and do the shows, you know, I I would watch people. I would talk to people. I, I got so much advice from so many people at ESPN tips of, things to do to help improve my hits, you know, the reps that I got, uh, the different shows and sort of what the take, you know, how you present yourself on this show versus this other show and everything from wardrobe ideas to, I I knew nothing when I got to ESPN Mm -hmm. and I learned a lot on the fly, but I felt this incredible pressure which I put on myself, um, nobody there did it. Um, but I felt this incredible pressure to succeed because number one, nobody had was doing this role. And mm-hmm. two, um, as a woman, I just felt like it was doubly important. And that, that's my own thing. I, I, it was not imposed on me by anybody else, but you just sort of feel it's this responsibility to Hey, this door came open and you know, this doesn't come along all the time. You've got to make it work. So you've got to figure out how to do this. I want to come back to that uh, in a couple of minutes. I have a couple other questions first. The first being you mentioned earlier how sometimes, you know, you watch a game and the medical explanation might be different than the sports take explanation. Do you find now when you watch games, are you I don't know how to say this exactly, but are you bracing for injury when someone goes down? Are you immediately like, oh, that is definitely a torn ACL. He's out for the season. Or how does that work? Are you even able to really enjoy games the same way anymore, I guess, is kind of what I'm asking. Well, first of all, I, I always enjoy games. Good. <laughs> always, well, that's good. That makes me happy. I always yeah. do. That, that doesn't go away. And, and some days I'm, you know, especially when NFL season starts, I'm reminded like, Oh, I have to watch football all day on Sunday. This is part of my job. This is what I do. I mean, it's really, it, it is ridiculous how lucky we are. Um, that being said, there are certain things I look for in games, but I think as a physical therapist, that was already happening. I mean, your eye is mm-hmm. just trained to look for certain things. If you work, especially if you worked in sports medicine, like I did, if you have experience working on the field, as I did, you're trained a certain way and that's going to be your eye and you, you, you can't do anything about that. So that comes naturally. I do think that it's very hard in the moment to accurately assess an injury. And I would say the broadcasts have gotten so much better about not speculating. And you'll hear broadcasters mm-hmm. say that all the time. We don't want to speculate on this. Or they, they might say, look back. I mean, they're reacting like a human would. I totally right. understand that when they say, oh boy, that didn't look good. Or we, we hope oh, we see them moving now uh, that, you know, you hear those comments 
totally appreciate that. What you don't want to hear is, well, that looked like an ACL to me, or that looked like for mm-hmm. sure. Because anyone who's worked on the sidelines will tell you that, yes, in your mind, you're going through a check down almost of what these things are most likely to be. But it's not just the visual. Um, like the, and sometimes the visual can be very helpful, which is why that video is available to the sideline um, team physicians so they can see the video uh, of injuries. And that can be very helpful, especially if the athlete doesn't really recall what happened. They're sort of in the moment. They don't know exactly what happened when they got hurt. And mm-hmm. their history is often something you rely on. So if they don't really know what happened, but you have the video available, that's great. Uh, however, sometimes something can look really bad. And then you start putting them through the physical exam and it's not as bad as what you feared. Uh, mm-hmm. on, the reverse can also be true where it didn't look like much of anything. And people are like, well, that, that wasn't anything. And then lo and behold, physical exam reveals it to be a much more significant injury. And so there are elements that we don't have available to us watching from afar. And therefore, I think it's dangerous to... Even, even if you're going to be right most of the time because you have a medical background, I, I think it's a little dangerous now. I, there are people who do it and um, are making a living at it now. It's not somewhere I prefer to live. So uh, I'm fortunate. I work with great insiders at ESPN. <laughs> work, you know, and, and when they report news, um, they're getting it from their sources. Um, and that's going to be what's reported is, is are the things that they have. And often those details are... Um, sufficient for me to then elaborate on, well, what does that mean? And I, so I see my role much more as what does that mean? And I've also, because I've worked with patients, I understand that speculating on their injuries puts, can put them in a bad spot. You know, they may not have all the feedback from the testing that's being done. There might be other things that we don't know about that are being looked at and people speculating on what that demise means is um is tough for the patients too shopify is the all-in-one commerce platform to start run and grow your business and i love it because shopify gives entrepreneurs the resources that were once reserved for big businesses so upstarts startups and established businesses alike can sell everywhere synchronize online and in-person sales and effortlessly stay informed I don't talk about it a ton, but I have a fishing company. Five years ago, actually five years ago this month, my best friend Aaron and I started a bass fishing weight company called Woo Tungsten because woo is the sound you make when you catch a giant bass. So we sell tungsten weights for bass fishing and Shopify has made it so incredibly easy. They have all the tools and the resources that we need. No matter how big or small your business is, They just make it so effortless. And like mine, Shopify powers over 1.7 million businesses from first sale to full scale. And you can reach customers online and across social networks with their ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps, including Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more. And you can gain insights as you grow with detailed reporting of conversion rates, profit margins, and beyond, which is something we use a ton. More than just a store, Shopify grows with you. Go to shopify.com slash bluewire, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and get access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business today with Shopify. Go to shopify.com slash bluewire 
right now. You'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Shopify.com slash blue wire. And it's, it's interesting that you bring that up because as a beat reporter, when I'm watching a game and of course tweeting the game um, and as you know, I cover a team that has unfortunately had a plethora of injuries oh, over I'm the years, <laughs> as you're very, very well aware. Um, it's very, I'm very careful about saying um, so-and-so was hit hard. He's down on the field being looked at. He's walking off on his own power. He's walking off with help. But it's, it's, I always kind of struggle with it a little because I want to be like really careful about it. Well, I think, um, and I think, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I, oh, it's been, I think, but everything, when you're relaying those facts, those are facts, you know, if the person they are. required assistance off the field, if they walked off under their own power. Now the interpretation of somebody walking off under their own power, meaning it's not a significant injury. That's the next step that you don't want to speculate on. Right. Because as it used to be, and listen, when I was in school and was taught, it was like, oh, if they tore their ACL, they're not walking off. Well, it just shows you where athletes are these days. They can walk and sometimes they actually look really good. In fact, um, I'll tell you a little story, but I was talking to Carson Palmer once about um, after he tore his ACL the second time, he had two, you know, first knee injury he had was horrific, had it all reconstructed, but you may recall he tore his ACL the second time when he was playing in Arizona. And he mm -hmm. said, you know, his knee felt a little funny, but he walked off and he goes, he didn't feel that bad. And then he was trying to do some things on the sideline and was walking. And then it was like, it slipped and it buckled. And then he knew. And mm -hmm. so that can happen. You know, guys will feel like maybe they're okay. They're not really sure. And then it, and then it's worse later. So again, it doesn't fit that, what we used to think was the classic example. Oh, they, none of them can walk off. Well, some of them can, and they, they, it can actually be deceptive. So I think you're safe as a reporter to always report the facts of what you see. Um, it's just taking it to the next level to suspect on what the implications are. That's the part that I think is, is better left for later. Well, and it, in week one with Jason Verrett, um, kind of a good example. And then, and then we can move forward, but he, he did start to walk off on his own. And I think we all tweeted, Jason Verrett is walking off on his own power, to which every fan was like, oh, thank God. Mm -hmm. And then I quote tweeted myself and said, but he stopped short of the sideline and then he needed assistance and he needs assistance into the locker room. And that's, you know, it's like a right. hard, and, it, and sometimes, sometimes I struggle with that too. I don't want to say it too fast. I think you just have to find that fine line. And I, and I guess as a, a tip to future reporters listening, would be to err on the side of facts and caution. Correct. And not can never go wrong there, right? <laughs> no, you cannot. Um, so I would love to talk about, um, obviously, many of us watched the Alex Smith piece that you did, which was incredible, talking about someone who obviously went through a horrific injury and truly is an incredible human. That was obviously an in incredible story. Um, and, and the way that you reported on it was just beyond. So that's just a moment to give you a really big compliment. Um, but so Thank I wanted you. to, uh, you're I, I appreciate that, but, um, really, you know, only as good as our subject allows us to be right. So he's fantastic as was a good, good teamwork. Teamwork makes the dream work. As I like to say, um, but I was going to ask you, and maybe it is that story and maybe it's something else, but what is one of the most rewarding stories you've ever covered or reported on? And then what is one of the most challenging? Well, actually, you could say his was both. I mean, yeah, that's was fair. certainly the 
Uh, look, it was the most ambitious project I've ever done. And, and there was a time, look, we, we talk about, you know, forging a path. I mean, even when I got to ESPN and I have to say again, overwhelmingly positive experience for me there in terms of support and in terms of the opportunities I've been given, but I have created many of them on my own by just pushing to do more. And there, there was, there were more than one person who told me along the way that I couldn't do feature reporting. I just always thought like I knew so many good stories from being a physical therapist and watching what athletes overcame and knowing that that really resonated with fans. I thought I can, I can do this because I know how to tell these particular kinds of stories. And, uh, you know, there were some people who basically thought that given my limited um, media chops, that that wouldn't be something I could do. Um, Again, if you recall, I said, I didn't know, didn't always sit well with me. Right. Um, (laughs) I felt like I, 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 with all the respect in the world for journalists, I, I, I never claimed to um, have a, gone to journalism school. I, I know where my shortcomings are, but I f- also saw former athletes who did features. I'm like, I know, mm-hmm. you know, they weren't going to journalism school, but they had right. a relationship to their subject in terms of understanding the sport, perhaps in a way that they could present the story. And I thought, why can't I do that? I understand the rehab side um, better than anyone who's a reporter. And mm-hmm. so if the story fits, why can't I do that? And, and so I did start doing features and I'm very proud of all the features that I've done. But when this opportunity came up and it really, it came up because uh, quite frankly, it was Alex's uh, orthopedic surgeon mm-hmm. in DC who knew me professionally and said, um, when, when it, it became clear that, you know, Alex was, willing to share a story and she thought it would be good for him to do that as something for him and his family, you know, to help and and maybe something he could share with others if they were facing a difficult path ahead. That's when I got brought into it. So I was introduced uh, to Alex by her and I brought the story to ESPN, but that uh, number one, we had to keep it under wraps. So there was a very, very small group of need to know people who um, were involved in the project. And part of that was because the subject was so delicate. Nobody really knew the extent of his injury. And it was very important mm-hmm. to them that those details were not just leaking out into the media at random. I mean, this was really about investing in the whole story. To Alex's mm-hmm. credit, he had no idea where the story would end up. I mean, his leg could have still been amputated at that point. There were no guarantees. Right. Uh, but once he was in, he was all in. So the the challenge was not only how do you tell the story and do it justice for him, for his family, um, but also be truthful and honest. And, and I think that we were, we took great pains to try and make that happen through every step of the way. And while we're giving credit, um, a shout out to my producer, Dan Lindbergh, who produced and directed it, it was phenomenal. Um, but it was also the most rewarding because look at the journey that I got to be, have uh-huh. a front row seat, you know, witnessing and, we just had no idea how it would work out and to see how Alex navigated that and to see how great the success was on his side for him personally and, and for him and his family. And 
quite frankly, I think he owes me a uh, thank you for now being my teammate at ESPN. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's fair. That's, I, that's I, probably I kid, true. My kid. But, but I do think it exposed him and the person that he is and um, just not only what a great guy he is, but smart and his work ethic and all these things that sometimes you don't get to know all these layers of an athlete because you're just watching them on Sundays. And I think um, that was the reward was, was sharing who Alex was with everyone and having them see how he succeeded despite this incredible adversity. And you bring up something that maybe not everyone realizes that you were doing the story in, in real time and you guys didn't know how it was going to end up, which is pretty incredible. Yeah. I mean, look all the time, you know, there were, there were some moments where, you know, maybe things weren't, it was ups and downs as you can tell from the piece um, but, uh, I mean, at the end, I will never forget the day he stepped on the field. I was at ESPN as I often am on Sundays watching games. And, uh, when Kyle Allen got hurt, I was like, oh my God, oh my God, Alex is going in. Like I jumped up from the place where I was watching. I went to the back of the room and, you know, we watched with all of our NFL analysts and such who are there for, um, Sundays and they were mm -hmm. Oh my God, Stefania, Alex, Alex going in. And I was like, Oh my God, he's got, I mean, I felt like my eyes tearing up. I was watching Elizabeth in the stand. Like I know them now. Right. And all I could think was like, I'm so nervous because you didn't want anything to happen. You knew how hard he'd worked to get there, but I was thrilled for him that he was getting this chance. But I also was thinking of how Elizabeth was feeling. And so, yeah, I think by the end, I was riding the waves of <laughs> emotion <laughs> right alongside them. I'm sure. I mean, how could you not? I mean, I just got like goosebumps just thinking about it, to be honest. So <laughs> I can understand that. Um, you've talked about, of course, that you came into this without maybe formal media training and, and talked about getting reps, whether it be in that part of your career or another part of your career. Do you remember getting a criticism that was difficult to take, but really helpful in the long run? Oh, I've had many. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, look, a physical therapy is, um, it's a learn by doing. And I think anything in medicine, people who have made a career in medicine have been criticized for sure, because mm -hmm. you're learning how to care for patients. You're also learning like, treatments, what's, uh, you know, is this the best approach or not? We do internships and fellowships and rotations where you are alongside with somebody who's a mentor, who's more of an expert than you. So I don't know that I could call out a single thing because that's been a part of my training since the beginning, um, whether it be in physical therapy or on the media side. And I asked for it when I got to ESPN. And it's, I think it's hard to hear when you're doing uh, media reps because it's so personal. You know, it's because mm -hmm. um, you can't, can't change the way you look. You can't change your voice. I um, notoriously have a low voice. So they would always say your levels are low. Like people would say louder, louder. And I think, I don't, I don't know how, how do I get louder right. <laughs> like without like you yelling. You probably and, sounded like crazy. And, you know, I think people have gotten more sophisticated because I know there are people who are quieter than me who are on air. So I, I, everything has evolved. But even understanding about projection or I just had to find out what worked for me. And I go, okay, when I sit down and do tracks for a piece, I'm not as effective at projecting as when I stand up. There's something about feeling more confident. And I stand, but I had to teach myself that. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I didn't have necessarily feedback. I would do things in front of a mirror and see how it looked or how was my eye contact or, and, and that you asked about the criticism, like maybe that came from the feedback. Some of my best producer friends, they were the ones who would be honest with me because sometimes mm-hmm. people would say, Oh, this is great. Thank you so much. I'd be like, anything would change. Nope. But a lot of that is, you know, they're going through so many people and it's a big place, right? You got people, right. analysts doing hits all over the place. If I had people who would sit down and really take time with me and say, okay, here's what we want in a, when you're coming on and you've got like 45 seconds, try and get like one, two, you know, these two things across and what's the takeaway you want and work out from there, say this or, you know, or how to encapsulate something in a 45 second hit, which was something I was not used to doing. I mean, teaching, you can talk for an hour and your students might not love it, but you know, you're talking or you're interacting or you're demonstrating and now you got to say something in 45 seconds. I think, well, what can I say that's even meaningful in that amount of time? Um, so I, I think there was a lot of little things, but it's just a good reminder that you have to be open to it and you have to sort of shut off the, the personal like ego, my feelings are hurt part of it, which mm-hmm. I don't think I can ever totally turn off, but at some level you are appreciating that in order to get better, you have to at least let that part fall to the wayside and, and take the criticism for what it's worth, which is a way to try and make you better. And I think you know who is giving you that criticism to make you better and who's just who you don't need to listen to. Oh, right. Like, if you're getting mean tweets too. on Twitter, like, yeah, that, yeah like, just ignore those. Stop listening to that. That, that to me is like, get out of my timeline. I, I just, you know, I, I have no issue with blocking people um, because I know that I don't need that. That is not good for my growth. <laughs> if I have right. someone who I respect and trust who's saying, Hey, you might want to do this, or this would be a better way to come at that. Um, then, then I'm all ears for that. That makes sense. I, and I think that's good. That's good advice in itself. Um, you, you said earlier that when the door was open to you for this opportunity, you put obviously pressure on yourself, uh, especially as a woman, how have you seen opportunities change and grow for women in the sports industry? How do you think we can improve? And have you kind of let a little bit of that pressure go? Or do you still feel like as a woman, you, I don't know if it's that you need to prove a little bit more or if you need to create, do well at your opportunity to create more for other women. Does that make sense? That was not my most eloquent question of all time. No, it's because it's a hard topic, actually, to be fair. <laughs> the question's hard because the topic's hard. And, and mm-hmm. as you're asking it, and I was thinking about it too before we talked, it the pressure isn't the same, but it's always a pressure. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying this is something to be admired. I mean, we all deal with things that, you know, we all have our little self doubts or little chirps in our, our brain that, you you know, you're trying to, you just try and balance those out with the positive self-talk so you don't get caught up in it. But I may not feel that same pressure because I know I, I am a woman who I feel like I have, you know, proven that I can, succeed at ESPN, right? I'm, I'm still uh-huh. there, knock on wood today, you know, at, at my 14th year, but now I have a different challenge. Now I'm a woman who's on the other side of, you know, that I'm not, well, let's just leave the number out of it, but let's just say that <laughs> I'm not in my youth. I'm not on the ascent of my career. And I don't want to think that I'm on the descent. So I, you know, to me, I feel like I want to find ways to keep improving and growing and doing better and better until the point in time where I decide 
I'm ready to be done. Um, and what you realize in media, quite frankly, is media has not been as kind to women as they age as it has been to men. And mm -hmm. all you got to do is look around and see that. It's just a fact. Um, there are more men who age and, and we accommodate that in a visual medium much better than we do women. And so mm -hmm. there's a challenge, right, of wanting to be authentic and also being nervous that you might be replaced just because you're a woman who's aging. Mm -hmm. um, so that's my current state of insecurity that I'm living with. But I think um, it's a very real thing. And I always, I try to always default to, well, I agree that you want to try and look presentable and professional and whatever that means to you in the, in the mm -hmm. medium that you're um, engaged with. Uh, for me, it's always been about what, what about my content is going to mm -hmm. make me stand out where they say we have to have this content. We can't do without it. Because I think at the end of the day, that's what wins. And so I, that's how I try and reshift my focus. But I do think that's the hardest thing for me now because I think about it a lot, a lot more than I wish I did. And uh, I don't have a great answer for that. It's, I, 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 it's something I am working on. So don't think that it just goes away because, you know, magically we, uh, we um, you know, we, we get over all our insecurities. I think it's just you, you find new and different things. And I, I think that my guess is if people were being honest, that's fairly universal, that everybody has their own stuff that they um, that they are challenged by in their in their workplace. But for me, when you're doing it in a very public way, um, you are getting more mature. <laughs> it's <laughs> I think that is a real challenge. And I would love to see that evolve. I think it's better than it was. I mean, gone are the days where, you know, if a woman was pregnant or past a certain age, she wouldn't be allowed on air. I mean, we've certainly right. um, advanced beyond that, thank goodness. But it's still a different uh, set of standards for men and women in that regard. And I think it is a great answer because it's honest. And there is the shared human experience is often very helpful. And I think all of us, as you said, have different things that we deal with, especially as women and different insecurities. So I think knowing that other people deal with it too, and no matter how much success you've had or how long you've been doing this or how you know confident you feel in yourself and in your career, we still all have our moments. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that. Well, so thank you. There you are. <laughs> so thank you for that. But you also said something that I, I do want to point out before we move to five fun facts. Um, and that is that you said your your content and making sure your content makes it so, you know, essentially they can't live without you. And I think that's important throughout one's career is that you let your content do the talking because you could be the most young, beautiful, fresh faced person on the market. But if your content isn't good, you are not going to last very long. I think that's, uh, that's just the facts, <laughs> you know, yes. and I think that I, um, that's where I get the satisfaction and the motivation, quite honestly, to keep working to, to try and, uh, do new things. What am I going to do to ensure that, um, my content stays at the top of what I think it should be? Um, what are ways that I can deliver my content that's going to be, you know, I've had to keep up with sort of the ways that people consume things. I might've really liked long form writing and I still really do. Um, but 
that's not as digestible to a lot of folks. So what sort of combinations can you come up with um, to reach the audience that you're trying to reach? And it's just, you've, you've got to, you've got to evolve with the times. And I think that's, I think that's really important as well. I could not agree more. Uh, this has been awesome. I personally have learned a lot uh, and I know our listeners have as well. So I thank you very much for sharing your journey and your story and for being so candid with us. Um, oh, about well, thank you for taking an interest. <laughs> it oh, absolutely. Like weird to talk about your, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, you don't know if you'll ever get used to talking about it, but I do agree with you that I've often really enjoyed hearing about different people's journeys and, and, and what were key moments for them or, you know, just with little nuggets that you file away and you go, Oh, somebody else has had that too, or that's something different mm-hmm. that I hadn't thought of. And so if it, if it does resonate in some way with your audience, uh, which I hope it does, then, um, then I will have hopefully accomplished my goal as your guest. I can, I can assure you, you 100% did, but I can't let you go yet because first we have to do five fun facts. Um, and I think, as you know, I do these with the 49ers players and some of the coaches. Um, I've done it with John Lynch, which was a fun one. But on this podcast, we ask everybody the same five questions and we get five different answers every week, which is really cool. So without further ado, five fun facts with Stefania Bell. Stefania, what is your favorite moment in sports? Uh, this one's easy. And actually, it's not easy because I've had some pretty cool <laughs> moments, including a World Series and University of Miami winning the national championship uh, back when they were good. But my favorite, and you'll appreciate why, is uh, the 2011 NFC Divisional uh, playoff game between the New Orleans Saints and the San Francisco 49ers. Oh, it was such a good game. Alex Smith. <laughs> ran a bootleg. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was this phenomenal, phenomenal comeback. Um, after people thought maybe Drew Brees had, had sealed it for a win, you know, between Alex scoring and then the touchdown pass to Vernon Davis, I think it was. And uh-huh. it was I was there Davis. with my brother and we were on the sidelines. And what's really funny about this moment is who knew that years later I would be sitting down in Alex's house interviewing mm-hmm. him for an E60 special. And when we were talking about some of his favorite moments, like that is, he said might've been his favorite moment. Um, that was before he came back from this injury, of course, but he said right. that might've been his favorite moment as an NFL player, because it was just, you know, he could feel what we felt in the stands. And for me to be sitting across from him talking about that, I was there at that game with my brother Mm-hmm. Um, Melissa Jacobs, the football girl was also there yes. and, uh, we still talk about it. It's just really one of the, our favorite as lifelong 49ers fans, as big Alex fans at the time. And then even now it's just more surreal that, 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 that was an event where I, I was sitting almost at the 50 yard line, which was really incredible. It was this beautiful day at Candlestick, one of the last games I saw at Candlestick. I mean, everything was right in the world that day. That's fair. It really was. God, that was, that was such a great day. What is your life motto? Oh, um, I think I would say it is, um, luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. Oh, I like that. I like that a lot. What is your go-to workout? Um, everybody who knows me knows it's some combination of boxing and something else. When I'm boxing, I am my happiest because I get to hit things. <laughs> Fair enough. 
can't argue with that. What is your go-to coffee order? Uh, triple grande non-fat mocha with oat milk, extra hot. Oh, wow. That sounds delicious. <laughs> and a book every woman should read. This is a hard one because I am a bibliophile. So I don't have like one favorite. I mean, this was a hard one because there's so many books and I always feel like I'm betraying one book for another when I have to make choices like this. But I was thinking about one of the books that impacted me the most as a woman. And uh, it might not be what you think, but um, it's uh, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Locks. Okay, I have not read it. you may have seen there was an HBO movie that was done. Oprah, um, I think, produced it and starred as the um, as Henrietta in in not her um, but her uh, her daughter. Who was it? Okay. Her daughter who is per- I look at me not even remembering like the the generations. I I, I can't remember if it was her daughter, um, but I think it was. But in any case, the point is that um, it that. It's all around, if you want to understand where mistrust of medicine comes from, if you want to understand some of the things that were done in the name of science that were, uh, it's complicated um, because I'm not even sure that everyone at the time was aware of how egregious some of the uh, things they were, they were doing in terms of violating uh, people's rights were, and women got taken advantage of more than anything. And this one woman in particular, it's a story of basically how her cells were captured without um, her permission. And then used to create cell lines that still exist to this day. And it's sort of a fascinating combination of medicine and science and history and women and race and social status and all of these things wrapped up into one. And it's a true story. Wow. Well, we'll have to check that out. I mean, I'm definitely going to check that out. And I hope our readers do as well, because that sounds like a fascinating book. Uh, Well, with that, Stefania, we will let you go on your way. Uh, But thank you so much for joining me today. This was a lot of fun. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Like I said, thank you for taking an interest. Absolutely. And if you guys like what you heard, which I know that you did, please make sure to leave us a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Fangirl Sports Network. Bye, all Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.